You're listening to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. I'm Phil Harland, a professor at York University in Toronto. This term I'm teaching a graduate level course to both MAs and PhDs on honoring the gods in the Roman Empire with a regional focus on Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. This podcast consists of my sitting down after I've had that class with the students and discussing some of the readings we had and especially exploring some of the ancient sources we used in order to get at the variety of practices that people in the Roman Empire engaged in in order to honor their gods. We're trying to get at in this series both the worldview, the mindset, the mentality that existed in the Roman Empire with respect to how humans related to the gods, but also the practices that people engaged in. There's a sense in which we have more evidence of the practices and these to some degree reflect that worldview that people held regarding how the gods relate to human beings. One of the things we're learning so far and that we'll continue to learn in today's episode is that the gods were considered to interact in the everyday lives of people in various aspects of life. Today we're going to be exploring the gods and justice. We're looking at indigenous practices to Asia Minor, but this is somewhat true of the Roman Empire generally, and that is that the gods were concerned with justice, with punishing those who have transgressed against the gods, and with rewarding those who honored the gods. And this issue of justice is important in many different places in the Roman Empire, but it's especially attested in this case in two specific regions of Asia Minor that we're going to focus on, namely Lydia and also Phrygia. These are two regions that existed long before the Greeks and the Romans came into Asia Minor. There was a Lydian Empire in Asia Minor in the period in the 500s BCE with the King Croesus being the most famous legendary king. The Lydian Empire was a region around specifically Sardis, and Sardis was the capital of this region. Going back further in history, there was a Phrygian kingdom in central Anatolia, further east of Sardis, in central Asia Minor, central Turkey. There was an even larger Phrygian empire in earlier centuries, especially back in the 700s BCE. You may know of the legendary King Midas that is associated with Phrygia. Now, these two different earlier kingdoms that came before ever there was a Hellenistic control of this area and then Roman control had their own specific cultural history, you could say. And today we're looking at the ways in which some of that cultural history continued into the Roman period. We're going to see that there is a continuation of some specific characteristics of Lydian culture, you could say, in Asia Minor, even into the Roman period. Now, having said that these, what I'm calling indigenous cults, these indigenous ways of doing things, having said that they continued into the Roman period, we're not arguing that they're totally isolated and not influenced by Hellenistic, Greek, and then Roman things. Not at all. We're just saying that there are certain characteristics of particular cults I'm going to talk about today that point to some continuity with those regional cultures. And this continuity also involved acculturation, assimilation, in relation to other cultural practices, alongside dissimilation, in other words, the continuation of that practice. 
There's a sense in which there are three main purposes then to today's discussion. One is to explain an example of indigenous sort of ways of thinking about the gods. In this case, looking at the what are called the confession inscriptions or the propitiation inscriptions from Lydia that are also attested in Phrygia. The second purpose today is to look at what's going on in the villages and the countryside. Most of the rest of our series here is focused on the Greek polis, on Greek cities in Asia Minor, and what sort of things Hellenized, Romanized people in Greek cities were doing in the Roman period. Today, though, by looking at Lydia and Phrygia, we're getting a glimpse into more of what may be going on in the countryside and in the smaller villages that aren't quite as Hellenized, that aren't quite as affected by the Roman cultural practices. The third main purpose of today is to illustrate the importance of the gods in bringing justice. Now, this third main point is particularly characteristic of these propitiation, these appeasement inscriptions that we find in Lydia. Namely, the gods involved were considered to be very concerned with justice, with making sure the right thing happened, with punishing those who improperly engaged in activities that offended the gods, and of rewarding those who properly honored the gods. This characteristic of Lydian practice is also characteristic of how the gods were viewed in the Roman Empire generally, namely that the gods were concerned with justice, with punishment as part of justice, and the gods were considered to intervene in everyday lives of human beings to bring justice about. However, today we're looking at specific ways in which this idea of just the justice of the gods got expressed and specific practices that are characteristic of Lydia, this region around Sardis in Central Asia Minor. So there's some ways in which what we're saying today applies to the Roman Empire generally, but on the other hand, we're looking at specific instances and specific practices that are more characteristic of a particular region in Asia Minor. First, I want to say a few more words about what I mean by indigenous cults. The students in the class for this discussion read an important chapter that I would recommend to you in Stephen Mitchell's book, Anatolia, Land, Men, and Gods in Asia Minor. Stephen Mitchell has several chapters that would be useful for you to understand what we're talking about today, but one of them that I would recommend is called Pagans, Jews, and Christians from the 1st to 3rd century. In particular, he talks about four main gods that illustrate the continuation of indigenous cults and indigenous practices in relation to the gods. First of all, we have considerable evidence of the importance of the mother goddess in Asia Minor. Let me say a few words about one of the most famous examples of the mother goddess in Asia Minor, and that is the mother at Pessinus. Pessinus was previously in what would be considered the Phrygian kingdom. By the time you get to the Hellenistic period, there is a temple state established at Pessinus in honor of the mother. And in this case, Strabo, the geographer who wrote in the time of Augustus, happens to refer to this temple state. This is a characteristic of some other temples in 
Central Asia Minor, especially in villages, village areas of Central Asia Minor, that the temple itself becomes the administrative center, uh, not of a city, but of its own self, so that you have a temple state running on its own, with the priests being the officials, you could say, of the temple state. Here Strabo's describing this area, and I thought I'd read this as an example. Pessinus is the greatest of the emporiums in that part of the world, containing a temple of the mother of the gods, which is an object of great veneration. They call her Agdissus. We'll come back to this name for the mother goddess in a later episode. The priests were in ancient times potentates, I may call them, who reaped the fruits of a great priesthood. But at the present, the prerogatives of these have been much reduced, although the emporium still endures. The sacred precinct has been built up by the Adelid kings, those kings that we've mentioned before that used to reign in Western Asia Minor centered on Pergamum, in a manner befitting a holy place, with a sanctuary and also with porticos of white marble. The Romans made the temple famous when, in accordance with oracles of the Sibyl, they sent for the statue of the goddess there, just as they did in the case of that of Asclepius at Epidaurus. There's also a mountain situated above the city, Dindumum, after which the country Dindumene was named, just as Kibale was named after Kibala. So here we have Strabo referring to the fact that often the mother goddess, this first of several indigenous sort of gods in Asia Minor, was often named after geographical places and especially mountains. If you look at other examples, you would find that often the mother is named after a local mountain. And she's associated with the wildness of nature in many of the perceptions and local understandings of, uh, of the mother. If you want to read further on this, there's an excellent book that deals with the mother goddess in Asia Minor extensively, right back beyond and before the Phrygian uh, period and right up to the Roman and Hellenistic period, Lynn Rawler's In Search of God the Mother, The Cult of Anatolian Kibbele. This is an excellent work which I highly recommend if you want to understand more about Kibbele or the mother goddesses in Asia Minor. As Strabo also mentioned there, she ultimately is exported to Rome, a particular version of the mother, gets exported to Rome as Kibbele in 204 BCE. However, we're focused here on the indigenous practices. The, as with many gods in the Roman Empire generally, there are local manifestations of these gods with epithets that pertain to the local version of the god. So you have many mothers of different mountains in Asia Minor. Another god that is particularly characteristic of central Anatolia, of inner Asia Minor, including Lydia and Phrygia, are the various versions of Zeus. Zeus, though, in an indigenous way. Here, for example, you would find Zeus Brontos, Zeus Fatnios, Zeus Megistos, Zeus Keronios. Depending on what village in Central Asia Minor you went to, there would be a variety of Zeuses. And we've already begun to learn this idea of the same name for a god and yet various variations on who that god is depending on local practices. And there would be local customs and local stories that were specific to that deity. 
In this case, we're getting a glimpse into what was going on, just to remind you, in villages, not only in the Greek city-states, but we're now in looking at some of what's going on in the villages and in the countryside of Central Asia Minor. A third god that is particularly prominent in especially Lydia and Phrygia is the god Men. As Stephen Mitchell points out on his page 24 here, the god Men is often depicted on coins and reliefs wearing a Phrygian cap and cloak with a crescent moon behind his shoulders, carrying a pine cone and often a rooster. So we have here a local indigenous Phrygian god who actually ultimately has been drawn from the Persian pantheon, it seems. The Persians had taken over the area that we're talking about here in the mid-500s BCE, precisely just after the height of the Lydian Empire under Croesus, the Persians came in and overtook Asia Minor. And so from the mid-500s BCE on, Persian influence comes to play a role in the indigenous practices of Lydia in the way that the gods are honored. And the god Men seems to have been a moon god associated with the calendar who uh, had some connection to Persian practice and then got adopted as a local indigenous practice within this area of Asia Minor. So when we say indigenous, you now know it's quite complicated. In other words, this is a, you could say originally, a foreign deity. As with the worship of many gods in the Roman Empire, originally something was foreign, it then gets adopted and comes to play a role in the local ways in which things are done. The final set of gods in this case that I want to mention that are characteristic of the countryside in Asia Minor and the villages of Asia Minor are the personifications of holiness and justice, namely holy and just. Hoseon kai de kaion. We find these personifications of holiness and justice frequently in the monuments of villages in Central Asia Minor, in Phrygia and Lydia. Now this may be a good springboard for a whole focus today on justice of the gods and punishment of the gods. We're going to be exploring the propitiation inscriptions. However, already from what I've said, you've begun to see that the importance of the gods bringing justice is characteristic of these local regions in Asia Minor that we're looking at today of Lydia and Phrygia. So much so that the personification of justice is a god that is considered to be active in bringing about justice at the local level in the everyday lives of people and of bringing vengeance against those who have violated uh, what are considered to be the social rules among people living in this area of Asia Minor. Now let's turn to another indigenous practice that is particularly characteristic of the region of Lydia in Asia Minor. That is what are often called the confession inscriptions that are perhaps better named the propitiation inscriptions as the scholar Rostad has shown. I'm thinking in particular of Aslak Rostad's important article, Confession or Reconciliation, the Narrative Structure of the Lydian and Phrygian Confession Inscriptions it's published in Symboli Osloensis, volume 77, in 2002. Let me explain a little bit about what confession inscriptions are, and then I will show how they illustrate well the interaction between the gods in the mindset of people in Lydia, between the gods and everyday life, and how the gods bring justice 
in everyday life and ensure that the right thing happens in everyday life and that they punish those who violate the right thing to do. We know far more about the so-called confession inscriptions of late because in the mid-1990s a scholar named George Petzl actually gathered together these characteristic inscriptions of the region of Lydia together in one collection. And so there's been in, in the decade that has followed that publication of the inscriptions themselves, approximately about 140 of them are now available. Uh, there have been a numerous studies that are beginning to, to look at what these inscriptions are about and how to interpret them in terms of cultic practice in this region of Lydia. One of the most recent scholars who has done quite a bit of good work on this is Aslak Rostad. Rostad argues that the phrase Beichtenschriften, which is translated in, from German into English as confession inscriptions, is somewhat misleading in regard to these particular monuments that were set up. He argues, uh, quite convincingly I believe, that the way in which we should interpret these monuments in reaction to transgressions that have happened is as a statement of the appeasement of the God, not as a confession of the transgression itself, which has happened in the past, but rather as a statement that the God and the worshipper are back in sync with one another, and that the God's anger has been averted, and that good things can be expected in the future even though the God punished in the past. And so Rostad suggests that the phrase propitiation inscription or reconciliation inscription, he sometimes has called it, is perhaps the most accurate way of describing these monuments. The point of putting up the monument is not to admit what you've done wrong, although that's included in the monument. The point of the monument primarily is to publicly state that your relationship with the God has been reestablished and that the God's anger has been averted. So he calls them, rightly so, I believe, the propitiation inscriptions for this reason. Now the propitiation inscriptions are primarily found in the region to the north and east of Sardis. There are some of these propitiation inscriptions that are find, found elsewhere in nearby regions, but they're highly concentrated just northeast of Sardis if you want to look at your map. The content and structure of these inscriptions is somewhat consistent, as Rostad has shown. Sometimes there is a dedication to the god that the inscription begins with. You then have a narrative portion of the inscription that explains the transgression that took place, that explains the hamartia, is the term, that we sometimes translate as sin, but I'm carefully choosing the word transgression so that you don't get mixed up with moral sins, so to speak. But there's a narrative section where the person involved in setting up the inscription explains what happened in the past to make the God angry, that brought about the punishment of the God. So the God was considered to be concerned about what human beings were doing, so much so that if a transgression against the gods took place, the gods took action. So the next portion of these inscriptions goes from that transgression and explaining what mistake was made by the human beings involved. Usually the person who has set up the inscription is the person who made the mistake, had made a transgressed against the gods. After that portion comes narrative or a reference to the punishment of the god, that the god brought justice, that the god recognized the transgression that had taken place and took action 
against the people involved and brought punishment to the people involved. The main gods that are considered to be active, particularly in these propitiation inscriptions and in bringing punishment and ensuring justice, are first of all men, that god we already mentioned when we were discussing Stephen Mitchell's article, and I'll give you a few examples soon from inscriptions of that. Another goddess, Anitis, who, like men, originates in the Persian pantheon, but was adopted within Phrygia and came to take on indigenous sort of characteristics within Phrygia. So men and Anitis are among the most common ones, and they have a Persian connection, an Iranian connection, from the far past. But we also find some confession inscriptions where the god who brings justice where the god who punishes the transgressor is Apollo Lyrbanus or Zeus. So after the dedication, after the statement of the transgression and a little story about what mistake the person made and then the expression of the god having punished them, there's a clear statement of the god having been appeased and the anger of the god having been turned away and a restatement quite often of the transgressors devotion to that God and the transgressors recognition of the need to specifically honor that God consistently in the future and to not again engage in activity that would be considered a transgression which would bring punishment from the God. Now for those of you who happen to know a little bit about Greek, I should at least mention to you some of the language that is used here. The word for transgression that I've been using here in the inscriptions themselves is most often hamartia. The term that in, when you read it in the New Testament is often translated sin, but I'm avoiding the word sin and I would even avoid it in translating the New Testament if I were doing that, uh, it, just to avoid the modern notions that we associate with moral sin. When we say sin here, when we say hamartia, we're talking about a transgression against the God. And it can involve moral aspects of how you're relating human beings around you. However, it's primarily about not following what a God wants you to do. Another common term that you'll find here in terms of Greek is ex elaskomai or helaskomai. That is the language of propitiation or appeasement or regaining the favor of the God. It's a public statement of the appeasement of the God, a public statement of the situation where the worshiper is back in the good favors of the God and can expect uh, rewards rather than punishment. There's several different examples of transgression in the inscriptions that have survived, but one of the most commonly attested ones, for example, is breaking an oath. When one made an oath in the Roman Empire, and especially in this area of Asia Minor, one was doing so in relation to the gods. One was promising that they were telling the truth, that they would do something, and they would call on the gods and swear by the gods that they were telling the truth. And so breaking that oath is sometimes the transgression that leads to the punishment of the gods. But there were a variety of other types of uh, transgressions. In several of the inscriptions, it's a transgression of not having properly honored the god, or Sometimes it would be expressed that the person was called in the service of the God and refused to do so, and as a result was punished. But sometimes the transgression has to do with how an individual a person or a family has related to other people. So the interactions between people are often involved. Let's look at some concrete examples of this now. 
just to finish off with clarifying what the propitiation inscriptions are and showing how the gods are active in punishing people in their everyday lives and in accepting the people back if they're willing to, in this case in Lydia, set up an inscription like this. Here we have an a couple of inscriptions involving the god Men that we mentioned earlier, that Persian slash Lydian god and Phrygian god that we've already encountered. And I'm reading from the translation that uh, G.H.R. Horsley gives in New Documents Illustrating Christianity from 1983. Number six in that has an article called Expiation and the Cult of Men. Here is his translation of a couple of inscriptions that will illustrate this whole process. To men Axiotenos, Epaphroditus, steward of Claudius Stratonicus, having made a vow, if he should get the wife which I want, and getting her but not paying his vow, after being punished, he set up the inscription, and from now on he blesses the god with all his family. This one comes from near Sardis and is dating to about 160 CE. But here you have a very interesting and somewhat humorous from the modern perspective. But here you had a, a person, a Prophroditus, who made a vow. You promised the god, men, that if he would get a wife, he would then set up something in honor of the god. He got a good wife, and he forgot to set up, or somehow didn't end up fulfilling the vow by setting up the inscription. Now, we've talked about the importance of vows already in the past, that votive offerings are very important across the board in the Roman Empire, especially in Asia Minor, but this is a particular local way in which this is taking place in terms of admitting the transgression uh, of having not fulfilled the vow and talking about the punishment that the god men remembers when people make vows to him. And it's a major transgression to not follow through and properly do what you promised. If the god provides you benefits, if you do not honor the god, punishment may be coming. And that's what we're seeing here in this propitiation inscription. Here is another one, also from the region around Sardis, from probably from Coressa, in 118 CE. So many of the inscriptions are from the late, late 1st century, and many, most of them from the 2nd century, some of them from the early 3rd century, from the early 200 CE. Here is another one that also involves the god Men. In the year 203, month Artemisios VI, when Trophime, daughter of Artemidorus, son of Cacanus, was called by the god into the favor of service, she was not willing to come quickly. The god punished her and made her insane. So she asked Mater Tersene, the mother goddess, and Apollo Tarsios, and Men Axiotenus of Artemidorus, who possessed Caressa, and he ordered the revenge to be written on a stone and to enroll himself in the service of the gods. So here you have the failure of someone to come quickly in servicing the god in some way, and we don't know the precise role that was supposed to be taken on here. The idea that the god would punish that person for doing that with in insanity, and that the person would then need to propitiate and reestablish a relationship with the god, reaffirming that they will enroll themselves, in this case, in the service to the god, and will continue to uh, honor the god in the future. So this is very characteristic of the propitiation inscriptions, and this punishment coming across very clearly here. The god punished her and made her insane.
Here we're seeing something that is characteristic not only of Lydia but of the Roman Empire generally and that is in the worldview of the people that we're talking about here everyday events that happen to people whether they be good or bad could often be interpreted in terms of the role of the gods intervening in human lives and so that if someone became sick you might automatically assume that somehow someone has not properly honored the gods and that the gods are punishing. This can also happen on the more grand scale, namely that natural disasters happening to a whole civic community, earthquakes, plagues, plagues like the one we talked about in connection with the oracle at Claros in an earlier episode, could be interpreted as the gods punishing us for not having properly honored them. So it works this way, that things happen to you in your everyday lives, you have a mindset that the gods are active in everyday lives, and then you interpret different events in light of that. And here we see that really happening. Namely, that, that there were some mental difficulties that this woman faced, and these mental difficulties were interpreted as punishment from the god for her not having fully engaged in service to the god. Let me read you a couple other inscriptions. These ones are translated in Angelos Caniotis's article, Under the Watchful Eyes of the Gods, divine justice in Hellenistic and Roman Asia Minor. Although I don't agree with the argument in this particular article regarding the prominent role of priests in these confession inscriptions, in these propitiation inscriptions, uh, nonetheless there's other valuable things to learn from Caniotis in this article. Here I just want to use uh, the uh, inscriptions that are translated here, a couple of them to further illustrate what we're talking about here. This is a, a very interesting one that involves a variety of people and it shows you that the issue of transgression sometimes involves interactions between human beings and that the gods can be quite angry and quite uh, quick to punish those who mistreat one another as well in the everyday interactions that are going on. That the gods care about how human beings are relating to one another is a way of putting it. This one's from 156 CE, it's number 69 in Petzl's collection. And here we have a translation of it by Caniotis. It involves a, a woman named Tatias who is now dead. Why is she dead? She's dead because the god killed her. Not only that, we'll see that the god also killed another one of her relatives. These are the punishments the gods can bring. This is very serious. You need to honor the gods and you need to make sure you do not transgress the gods because it can lead to your death. Another way to put it though from the modern historian's perspective is when people die, other relatives of the dead person might start to wonder what did our relative do wrong? And that's what we're seeing going on here. Let me read you the inscription and unpack it a little bit. Since Eucundus was struck by insanity and it was rumored by everybody that he had been given a potion by his mother-in-law Tadius, Tadius set up a scepter and deposited imprecations in the temple as defending herself against an imputation, although she was conscious of her guilt, the inscription says. So here we have Tatias, a mother-in-law, who rumor had it had poisoned in some way Eucundus, her stepson, who went crazy as a result of the potion. She went to the temple then to say, look it, I did not do it, I promise. She made an oath. She swore an oath to the god that she did not do it. For this reason, the gods exercised a punishment, the inscription goes on, which she did not escape, namely she was killed by the god. Similarly, 
her son Socrates, when he was passing by the entrance which leads to the grove, having a sickle in his hands, with which one cuts down vines, the sickle fell on his foot, and thus he died within a day, probably bled to death, suffering his punishment. So we have this mother who is a rumor has it, poisoned and made her son insane, stepson insane. She dies and gets killed by the gods and the interpretation of the people involved, and that her son also dies shortly after, and all of this is a result of her breaking the oath she made to the god and a result of her transgression in doing so, and also in her transgression in relation to others. The gods at Atsiota, it goes on, are great. They demanded that the scepter associated with the oath and the imprecations for the oath made in the temple be annulled. Sakrataya, Moscas, Yukundus, and Menocrates, the children of Yukundus, the children of the guy who was driven insane by the supposed poison of Tatias, and Moscion and grandchildren of Tatias. There's a whole family of people here interpreting the event in a particular way and getting involved and realizing they have to do something about how the god is punishing them and their family. Annulled this, atoning in every way to the gods, having reported the power of the gods on a stele, on a plaque, we praise the gods from now on. This is very characteristic of the propitiation inscriptions. Here we have a family, after the death of family members, trying to appease the gods in relation to their dead family members, and worried about the consequences that may fall on them, and the punishments that may continue to come from the gods against the family, if they do not take back the oath that Tatias had originally made in a temple to the god. Uh, an oath saying that she hadn't poisoned her stepson when, in the interpretation of what happened here, she must have. Because why else would she have been killed? Why else would her actual son have been killed as a result? It was must have been that she was lying originally about having poisoned her stepson. And so we're seeing the sort of worldview, the mindset that's going on here, but we're also seeing how it's down-to-earth, everyday interactions that are being interpreted as relevant in relation to the gods, and that the gods actively punish. They may protect too. Don't forget that. We learn, we're learning that throughout the rest of the series. These same gods that we're seeing punishing here can protect on other occasions, but here we're seeing the ways in which they punish, punish to the point of death if they're feeling transgressed. The final inscription I want to use and as an example here is you could say somewhat humorous in some respects from a modern perspective, but it would be t it was obviously taken quite seriously back then. Here we have an inscription uh, pertaining to the transgressions of Theodorus. This inscription is from the early three, uh, 200s, from 235 CE approximately. It's number five in Petzl's collection. It's one of the more extensive inscriptions, examples of these propitiation inscriptions. This one's quite interesting because of the format it uses is different than most other propitiation inscriptions. It's put in the form of Theodorus's statement as to what he has done, Zeus's statement, the god Zeus's statement, in other words, the Zeus's oracle, you could say, as to how Zeus viewed what Theodorus did, and this gets repeated. So you have Theodorus saying something, Zeus saying something, Theodorus saying something, Zeus saying something, etc. Now, Theodorus was a slave of the gods, as the inscription puts it. He was a slave in some sanctuary in uh, this area, and it involves the god Men, 
and Zeus in this particular inscription. So we're back to that god that you're familiar with already. The offense in this case was uh, Theodorus's sexual relations with people he should not have been having sexual relations with. First of all, he's a slave of the gods, which may have entailed some restrictions on what sort of sexual behavior he could engage in. So this may have been one of the transgressions. We're not, it's not totally clear in the inscription. In other words, in his functions within the temple, perhaps he was required to be sexually pure in connection with the services he provided in the temple. But also, the people he's having sexual relations with are someone else's wife. Uh, and he has, he's a bit, bit of a repeat offender here, and we'll finish with this one today. So here we go with Theodorus and then Zeus, Theodorus, Zeus, saying what they have to say. Theodorus, because I have been brought by the gods to my senses by Zeus and the great men of Artemidorus, I have atoned or have set up this inscription. Zeus, I have punished Theodorus on his eyes for his offenses. Turns out that this person has gone either completely blind or temporarily blind. Theodorus, I had sexual intercourse with Trophime, the slave of Haplocomas, the wife of Eutychus, in the Praetorium. Zeus, he takes the first sin away with a sheep, a partridge, and a mole. So sacrifices are made as a way of taking away the first transgression. Theodorus, while I was a slave of the gods of Nonos, I had sexual intercourse with the flutus, Ariagne, Zeus, he takes away with a piglet, a tuna, another fish. Theodorus, for my third transgression, I had sexual intercourse with the flutus Aratusa. Zeus, he takes away with a chicken, a sparrow, a pigeon, a cypros of barley and wheat, a procus of wine, these are measurements we're not sure of, a cypros of clean wheat for the priests, one procus. Theodorus, I asked for Zeus's help. Zeus, look, I have blinded him for his transgressions. But since he has appeased the gods and has erected this monument, he has taken his transgressions away. Asked by the council, using sort of trial language here, Zeus talking as though he's in a court case. Asked by the council, I respond that I am kindly disposed. If he sets up my monument, on the day I have ordered. You may open the prison. I set the convict free after one year and ten months. So there's this punishment lasted for more than a year. Here we have Theodorus successfully now averting the anger of the gods and re-establishing a proper relation with Zeus and most likely men as well. So I hope you've had a sense from this discussion of the way in which the gods interact in the everyday lives of people in Lydia and Phrygia. Remember that in this episode we've actually gained a glimpse into what's going on in the smaller villages in the countryside in this particular region. And we've gained insight into indigenous practices that are somewhat different from practices that go on elsewhere. Even though there's that common element no matter where you go in the Roman Empire, no matter what region of the Roman Empire you go to, you can be pretty well guaranteed that most people agree that the gods punish those who transgress against them. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. In the next episode, we move on to imperial cults. We move on to the way in which the emperors, an imperial family, could be viewed as gods and treated as gods. And we'll soon see how the emperors were honored in Roman Asia Minor.